Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and welcome to the new year, everyone. We made it. Seeing as it's the first month of 2023, in this month's episodes, I'm covering two Victorian true crime firsts. Tonight's episode is about the first murderer who was arrested with the aid of wireless telegraphy. This is the story of Dr. Crippen. But first, a Victorian society tip. In 1899, American drug manufacturer Merck & Company published its first edition of the Merck Manual of Diagnosis and Therapy. Now in its 20th edition, the Merck Manual remains the world's best-selling medical textbook. Of course, we know a lot more about medicine today than we did back in 1899. So I wanted to share some advice from the manual's first publication just to see how far we've come. First up, arsenic. Victorians use arsenic for everything. In the 1899 Merck Manual, it's recommended as the treatment for everything from anthrax to syphilis to anemia. People would ingest it, inhale it, inject it, put it on their skin, and the side effects were rashes, stomach distress, and headaches. Plus, if you've listened to at least one or two episodes of this podcast, and honestly, even if you haven't, you probably know about the side effect of death from arsenic poisoning. Another dreadful treatment recommended by the manual is laxatives to treat pretty much any kind of eruptive fever, meaning a fever with a rash, such as chickenpox, smallpox, or scarlet fever. Can you imagine trying to combat smallpox with laxatives? Anyway, it didn't work. It just gave people a whole new set of problems to deal with on top of being very sick already. Next is strychnine. If you're a fan of true crime, particularly older true crime, you've undoubtedly heard of strychnine poisoning. But in 1899, it was recommended as treatment for constipation. It was thought to help with all sorts of stomach ailments, including gas and ulcers. They also recommended chloroform for curing the hiccups. I mean, if you can't breathe, you can't hiccup, I guess, so they weren't wrong. If you have asthma, the manual states smoking is sometimes beneficial. Recommending the use of cannabis and dusha for chronic asthma, as well as other herbs like stramonium, hallucinogen-inducing nightshade, or lobelia, which was known for its sedative properties. I'm not a doctor, but don't smoke if you have asthma, please. Other treatments for calming problems included belladonna for colic in babies, leeches for earaches, which actually had some almost sound science behind it, and cocaine for alcoholism. Listen, I'm not saying we know all there is to know or that we always get it right when it comes to medical diagnosis and treatments, even today. I am glad, though, that they are no longer prescribing arsenic, strychnine, and cocaine as medications, though. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. Holly Harvey Crippen was born on September 11 in 1862 in Coldwater, Michigan. The family owned and operated a dry goods store that provided a comfortable life for them. Having a lifelong interest in medicine, young Holly enrolled in the University of Michigan Homeopathic Medical School and later graduated from the Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College in 1884. Homeopathy is the idea that like cures like when it comes to medical ailments. For example, if you have a condition characterized by inflammation, your treatment would be to take maybe small amounts of some sort of medication that actually causes inflammation. The goal being to just alter your body's response enough so that whatever is ailing you starts to bother you a little bit less over time. 
The treatments are usually botanical or derived from animals, and during the 19th century, it was kind of considered the flip side to what they called shotgun prescriptions. Shotgun prescriptions were medicines with just a little bit of everything in them, and we know in the Victorian era, they put some crazy stuff in their medications. Arsenic, cocaine, morphine. So where shotgun prescriptions were like, here, take this, something and it might work, homeopathy was very tailored, regimented therapy, and that appealed to people. Nowadays, homeopathy is classified as a pseudoscience, pending more research, of course, but back in the 1880s, it was on the cutting edge of the medical field, and the school and hospital that Dr. Crippen studied at were like where it was at for homeopathy. After he graduated, he moved to New York, where he met and married an Irish nurse named Charlotte Bell. In 1889, the couple welcomed a son they named Otto, but three short years later, Charlotte suddenly died from a stroke. It sounds like she may have been pregnant with their second child at the time. Dr. Crippen, grief-stricken and overwhelmed, sent his son to California to be raised by his parents while he remained in New York. One day, Dr. Crippen, now about 30 years old, is presented with a 17-year-old female patient by the name of Cora Turner. Of course, there's no official record of how things transpired, but one thing led to another, and shortly thereafter, the good doctor and Cora were courting over dinner. Now, Cora's real name is Kunigand Makamowski. Her parents were both immigrants to New York, her mother being German and her father being of Polish and Russian descent, who operated a fruit stand in Brooklyn. Cora herself, though, had big dreams of becoming an opera singer and is described as using her feminine charms and wiles to achieve her roles. Also, by many accounts, she is larger than life. Wherever she goes, she's the life of the party. Cora is bringing main character energy. It's Cora's world, and we're all just living in it. And mild-mannered Dr. Crippen is infatuated with her. He is completely smitten, dazzled, blown away by this precocious, beautiful young woman. Cora, in turn, sees dollar signs. I mean, I shouldn't put it that way. Of course, we don't really know what Cora's impressions of Dr. Crippen were, but by most accounts, the two were an odd couple. And it probably can't be ignored that Cora likely saw the advantages of having a doctor by her side. There is one problem, though. It's kind of well known that Cora is being kept as another man's mistress, and in return for her company, he pays for all sorts of voice and acting lessons for her so she can advance her career. She confesses to Dr. Crippen that yes, this is true, and in fact, he's so taken with her, he's told her that he's going to leave his wife and propose to her, and she has a feeling the proposal is coming very soon. Dr. Crippen, blinded by love, couldn't risk Cora being swept out from under him, and he proposes. The couple were married in Jersey City, New Jersey on September 1st, 1892. Over the next two years, though, business declined for Dr. Crippen, and he found work elsewhere at Munyon Homeopathic Home Remedy Company in 1894, which was a mail-order business. As it turns out, Dr. Crippen was one of the company's best performers, having high customer return and satisfaction ratings. During this time, he frequently traveled between the company's Philadelphia and Toronto offices, leaving his wife, who also went by her stage name as Belle Elmore, in New York City. During this time, it was kind of rumored but never really spoken of directly that Cora frequently enjoyed the company of men other than her husband. Now, if this bothered Dr. Crippen, he kept it all sealed and locked away beneath the surface. But some who knew him well said they could sense an anxiety in him about it. By 1897, things are still going well enough professionally for Dr. Crippen anyhow, and he is charged with opening the company's first overseas office in London. Meaning, of course, he has to go to London. Cora, though, for her own career reasons, stays behind in America. Now, it kind of has to be said that for all of the determination Cora has for pursuing her career and her voice lessons and acting lessons, she wasn't really that good. 
I mean, she did manage small roles here and there, but she never really broke through as she has hoped. So shortly thereafter, Cora follows her husband to London, but she doesn't really find the scene there any more accepting than back in New York, and she pressures her husband, hey, you're doing well enough, can't you produce a show for me? And so he does. But after all the work he put into it, the show is a flop and closes after one week. Thankfully, Dr. Crippen has managed to hold down his day job well enough, and all the while he's been traveling back and forth to the U.S. for business. It's during her husband's absence on these trips that Cora is rumored to have begun an affair with a prize fighter turned musician named Bruce Miller. Again, kind of everyone knows, nobody talks about it situation. Now, after Cora's show was a flop, Dr. Crippen continued to spend a fair bit of time managing his wife's stage career. Maybe he thought it would bring them closer, maybe he just wanted to keep a close eye on her. Whatever the reason, he unfortunately spent so much time working for her that he started to neglect his responsibilities at Manyan, and he was fired in 1899. He finds work quickly again, though, at the Drua Institute for the Deaf, where he meets young stenographer Ethel Clara Linev. Ethel has a front row seat to her boss's tumultuous marriage, as Cora had a habit of storming into his office, ranting and raving about whatever injustice the entertainment industry had dealt her this time, and demanding money for more lessons and more training from her husband. By about two to three years into Dr. Crippen's employment at the Institute, though, he and Ethel are engaged in what we'd probably describe as an emotional affair. In 1908, though, the Institute closed due to bankruptcy, I believe, and Dr. Crippen was forced to find new employment again, which he does as a partner at a dental practice, and he takes Ethel with him as his personal secretary. Due to this change in employment, Dr. Crippen and Cora are forced to relocate to a less expensive area of town, and Cora is really put off by this. She had become very involved in the Music Hall Ladies Guild. Honestly, I don't know what they did, but that's besides the point anyway. The point is the status that being a membership of the Guild offered Cora, and if she had to downgrade her living arrangement, this made her look bad in front of her friends. So she was not pleased about this move. As a result, she pressed her husband to take on lodgers in their home to make up the difference in income so she could continue to afford her lifestyle. One day, Dr. Crippen arrives home to literally find Cora in bed with one of the lodgers. Now, technically, he's known this sort of thing has been going on for years, but he's never been confronted with it so directly in his face. So he runs straight to Ethel, and their emotional affair becomes a full-blown affair. And it's at this point the couple start to live pretty much separate lives within the same house. Dr. Crippen is even seen dining out, having romantic dinners with Ethel at restaurants, and after a short while, she reveals to Dr. Crippen that she is pregnant. And the good doctor is thrilled. He's ecstatic. He's going to be a father. Now, Ethel does wind up losing the baby, but this pregnancy might be one of the things that set what's about to happen in motion. On January 31st of 1910, Dr. Crippen and Cora have another couple over for dinner, the Martinettis. They leave about 1 a.m., and that is the last time anyone ever saw Cora alive. Days go by, and Cora's friends begin asking after her. Dr. Crippen says she suddenly got called away to visit a sick relative in California. More time goes by, and Cora's friends continue to try and check up on her. It's at this time Dr. Crippen amends his story slightly to say that yes, she did go visit a sick relative in California, but she's sick herself now too, and it'll probably be a while before she can come home. Now her friends start to side-eye the story a little bit, but what else can they do? They continue to ask after her welfare until one day Dr. Crippen is just like, you know what, she died. Yep, she went to California, she got sick, and she died. He returns the checkbook and ledger Cora had in her possession as treasurer to the Music Hall Ladies Guild, and her friends in the guild are like, I'm sorry, what? And they are not buying a story. 
So they go make a report to Scotland Yard where Detective Inspector Walter Dew receives their complaint. But he says there's not much he can do based on Jess's suspicion, so he does nothing. Now, the ladies of the Music Hall Guild are nothing if not resourceful, and they manage to figure out that no one by the name Crippen or Elmore boarded a ship departing for America on the day Dr. Crippen claims she's to have left, and no one by those names has died in California within the past month. So Inspector Dew is like, well, you've got me there, but he still does nothing about it. Meanwhile, Cora disappeared about February 1st. It's now March, and Dr. Crippen's lover, Ethel, has moved into the home that Crippen was sharing with Cora. Inspector Dew, though, is asked to look into the matter more seriously when a personal friend of his boss, whose wife is also in the entertainment industry, calls in a favor. Now, this doesn't come to fruition until July 8th when Inspector Dew calls upon the Crippen household and finds Ethel there alone. She tells him Dr. Crippen is at his office. So the inspector heads over there and Dr. Crippen drops what he's doing and accompanies him back to his house where he allows him to search the entire home. He also comes clean about Cora's disappearance, allegedly. He says he did lie about Cora visiting a relative and becoming sick herself and dying over there in California. The truth is, she ran away with one of her lovers. He doesn't know which, she had so many, but she'd probably been planning it for a while, and he provides a letter from his bank that Cora had notified them that she intended to completely withdraw all of the funds from their joint checking account back in December as evidence, which is true. She did try to do that. He says he lied because he was just so embarrassed and ashamed of the whole matter, he just couldn't bring himself to tell anyone the truth. And Inspector Dew is like, wow, tough luck there, friend. Good luck to you, I guess. And he goes on his way. And the inspector meant that. He completely accepted Dr. Crippen's version of events as true and says if he hears anything of Cora, he'll let him know. About a week later, Inspector Dew returns to Dr. Crippen's home just as a follow-up. This time, the housekeeper comes to the door. She tells the inspector that Dr. Crippen and Ethel have been gone for about a week, and she's only there to finish closing up the house in preparation for an extended absence, after which she's been dismissed from her duties working for Dr. Crippen. Inspector Dew realizes that perhaps he's made a mistake about the good doctor, and he initiates a more thorough search of the home. Scotland Yard would conduct a total of four searches of the Crippen home, and it's during the fourth search when they realize the ground under some of the bricks in one corner of the basement is kind of squishy. They pull up the bricks and they discover the decomposing torso of a body wrapped in a men's pajama jacket. The head and limbs are missing, and it's described as being de-sexed, meaning the entire pelvic region had been removed. They apparently find the bottoms to the pajamas in Dr. Crippen's bedroom. Also, the torso had been covered in slaked lime. No doubt whoever the killer was meant to dissolve the body with quicklime, but didn't realize that when quicklime becomes wet, it turns into slaked lime, which actually preserves rather than breaks down. The news of the grisly discovery is splashed across newspaper front pages worldwide and report that police are urgently seeking Dr. Holly Harvey Crippen for questioning because they strongly suspect the torso belongs to the doctor's missing wife, Cora. Unbeknownst to police, Dr. Crippen and Ethel are currently in Brussels, Belgium. It turns out they left immediately after Inspector Dew left the Crippen home after his first visit. The doctor had appeared cool, calm, and collected on the outside, but inwardly, he panicked. So Dr. Crippen and Ethel start seeing the papers like everyone else and decide they need to leave town. They book passage to Quebec, Canada on a ship named the Montrose for July 20 under the name John Philo Robinson being accompanied by his 16-year-old son. The 16-year-old son is actually Ethel disguised in boys' clothing. Dr. Crippen also shaved his signature mustache and begins growing out his beard. 
Now, all ships, including the SS Montrose, bound for Quebec, have been alerted to be on the lookout for Dr. Crippen and Ethel. The captain of the Montrose, Captain Kendall, had with him on board a newspaper that included a photo of Dr. Crippen and Ethel, and while he hadn't seen them, he did have a couple of suspicious characters on board that voyage. A father and son were oddly affectionate, always holding hands and gazing at one another on deck, and upon closer inspection, the captain is certain that that is not a father and his 16-year-old son. That is a man and a poorly disguised woman in boys' clothing. He telegraphs Scotland Yard immediately to advise them he is certain the fugitives are passengers on a ship. Inspector Dew immediately boards a faster ship bound for Quebec, the SS Laurentic, and the world watches to see if Inspector Dew's ship can indeed overtake the Montrose with a few days head start in time to make what might become the arrest of the century. And he does. When Inspector Dew arrives in Quebec, he disguises himself as a ship's pilot. A pilot is someone usually part of a small crew that were board an arriving ship before they actually dock to help guide them into port. Now, Dr. Crippen had traveled as an upper-class passenger, and as such, the captain invited him to meet the pilots as they board. If he had booked steerage-class passage, by the way, the captain likely wouldn't have noticed him at all. As Inspector Dew boards, he spots Dr. Crippen waiting with the captain. He walks right up to him, removes his pilot cap, and says, Good morning, Dr. Crippen. Do you know me? I'm Chief Inspector Dew from Scotland Yard. And Dr. Crippen stares blankly at him for a beat and then says, thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand it any longer. And literally holds out his wrist to be cuffed, making his one of the first ever arrests to be carried out with the aid of wireless telegraph. What a time to be alive, am I right? His arrest was also supported by the fact that he chose to sail to Canada instead of America, where he did have citizenship. If he had headed for America, even if he had been spotted, extradition processes would have at the very least bought him a significant amount of time in his escape. And in the best case for him, allowed him to escape altogether. But he didn't. He picked Canada, which at that time was still under dominion of the British Empire, giving Inspector Dew the right to walk right onto the ship and carry out the arrest as he did. Dr. Crippen and Ethel were then returned to the UK to stand trial separately. Dr. Crippen's trial came first, and it started on October 18, 1910, and lasted four days. Due to the decomposition, pathologists could not determine whether the torso was male or female, but noted that it had an abdominal scar that was consistent with Cora's medical history. But the defense argued that wasn't scar tissue at all, since it had hair follicles and hair growing from it, something scar tissue doesn't have. Additionally, large quantities of the drug scopolamine were found in the torso. It's noted that Dr. Crippen purchased scopolamine about two weeks before Cora's disappearance as part of an order he was placing for the dental practice he worked at. That explains things a little bit, but the application of scopolamine at the time was for calming mentally ill patients. It didn't really have any practical application in dentistry. The allegation was that either he meant to outright poison her with it, or he only meant to sedate her and accidentally gave her too much. The defense also tried to argue that the torso very well might have been there since before the Crippens even purchased the house. But remember the pajama top it was wrapped in? They used a fragment of the tag to identify the manufacturer of the garment, who testified they didn't even make that style until 1908, and since the Crippens purchased the house in 1905, it was impossible for it to have been placed there earlier. Dr. Crippen was of no help to himself during the trial. He tried to play the hero through and through in an effort to protect Ethel's reputation and would not provide any sort of level of detail that would have helped him. And he paid the price for it. A jury deliberated a total of 27 minutes before returning with a guilty verdict, and Dr. Crippen was sentenced to hang on November 23, 1910. His last request was to be buried with a photo of Ethel and some of her letters to him, which he was granted. 
He is buried at the Pentonville prison. Ethel was charged with being an accessory to murder after the fact. Her trial lasted only one day, I believe, and she was acquitted. While Dr. Crippen was awaiting execution, he made Ethel the executrix of his estate. But when she tried to apply for what's called letters of administration to the estate, her application was denied on the grounds that being found guilty, Dr. Crippen, nor anyone appointed by him, could profit from his wife's murder. Sorry, Ethel. Anyway, after the trial, Ethel relocated to Toronto for three years, where she worked as a typist. Then she returned to London, where she met and married a man named Stanley Smith in 1915, and they went on to have two children together. Ethel died at the age of 84. So while Dr. Crippen was found guilty, and it does seem like the prosecution did a pretty good job in providing evidence, there were and still are those that have their doubts. First, some argue that they never established that the torso was in fact Cora. Some posit that the doctor might have been offering abortion services at his home and the torso could actually be some other woman. Also, it wasn't that long ago that Scotland Yard had failed to catch Jack the Ripper and they were still trying to recover the reputation. It's not impossible that police planted the evidence there for an easy win. Now, I heard all this and I thought, okay, why do you run though? A disguise nonetheless. Sounds pretty guilty to me. But then, in 2007, a Michigan State University forensic psychologist, David Foran, compared DNA from the side of supposed scar tissue skin to descendants of Cora and found no match. Further, they determined that the skin from the torso was actually male. Of course, holes have been poked in this too. There's really no way to know that the tissue sample on the slide was from the torso at all. Also, the genealogy of Cora's descendants has been disputed as there doesn't seem to be a birth certificate in existence for Cora. Also, the DNA techniques have been called into question as well. Despite the modern evidence, though, I have to say, I think he did it. Whether it was intentional or by accident, he certainly had motive, he tried to flee, and Cora never resurfaced. And remember, she loved the limelight. If she had run off and changed her name or something, the news of her going missing spread all over the world. You'd think someone somewhere would have identified her, and that's only if she didn't pop up to center the narrative on herself again first. But I am very interested to hear what you think. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at A Good Night for a Murder, you can see some of the photos of Dr. Crippen, his wife Cora, Mistress Ethel, and more. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're there on the website, you can sign up for a Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper or Butler to your patrons for this episode is the story of James M. Munyon. Remember our friend Dr. Crippen worked for Munyon Homeopathic Home Remedy Co. for a while? And as it turns out, Mr. Munyon was a real person, and he was quite the character himself. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more at the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.